like to, turn with me to Luke chapter 20. We'll begin there in a moment. Uh, Luke chapter 20, we'll be looking at a text that we've looked at a couple of times just recently. Last week, we had a break from the series I began two weeks ago on authority, so we will continue that study um, this afternoon. You might turn to Luke chapter 20. It's wonderful to be with everyone this afternoon. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know you're our honored guest, and we'd love to see you back at any other opportunity. I appreciate Nathan and his choice of song, especially the last one, that Jesus is our King. And we want you to know, if you're visiting with us, that we believe that wholeheartedly, which is why we do things in certain ways here at this place and in our lives as individuals. It's because Jesus reigns as King. He has all authority. Matthew 28 and verse 18 tells us. And in Colossians 3 and verse 17, we're told to do everything, whatever we say or do, we must do in His name, that is, by His authority. So if you do have any questions about what we've done or said here this afternoon, or at any other time that you were with us, if you heard anything that seems odd to you or just different, that you have a question about, we'd love for you to ask those questions, and we'd love to study the Bible with you, because we want to do simply what the Bible tells us to do. Um, Brother Davis, in his lesson, uh, gave a passing reference to some of the things that we'll talk about um, this afternoon as we looked at the example of the Apostle Paul, the fact that we can learn from him and know what is right to do by seeing what he did in his life, what is recorded in the book of Acts, and some of the things he referenced that he did in his life in his epistles, and just the fact that his writings are inspired of God. But no doubt we can know what God's will is in part, by approved apostolic example, so keep that in your mind as we progress in this lesson. Luke chapter 20, we might remember that Jesus is challenged again by some of the Jewish rulers. And every time they confronted Him, save for in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus coming to Him by night, it was ultimately to trap Him. Nicodemus evidently had some kind of honest investigation of truth and was convinced to a certain degree at that time that Jesus was indeed a prophet of God at the very least. But here, like many other times, most other times, they want to trip Jesus up. And it's interesting that the way that they're going to, in their mind, show that Jesus is a sinner, is a fraud, and is to be rejected, and in their minds they want Him killed eventually, is that He's lacking authority in their minds. So they ask Him, in verse 2, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? I also noted that several weeks ago, Billy preached a lesson on this very text where he showed the ulterior motives of these Jewish leaders. And he showed the reason for Jesus responding the way that he did. We know that Jesus knows the hearts of men. So he wasn't avoiding the answer, avoiding the question. But he was exposing their motives. So he said, I will ask you one thing and answer me, the baptism of John... Was it from heaven or from men? And then they reason among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they said they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. A couple of lessons ago, we pointed out a couple of different things. Firstly, the need for authority that is obviously given in this particular passage. The fact that we do need authority. That wouldn't have been an approach they would take to Jesus if we could just do and say whatever it is that we wanted based on any authority. We need authority, period. And they knew if Jesus did not have authority that He would be rejected. We also note that we need authority by Jesus' response. This would have been the perfect time for Jesus to say, listen, we're ushering in this dispensation of grace. Stop talking about authority. We don't need to worry about that. You just do what you think is right in your heart, and, and you're going to be okay. You don't need to give an answer for all that you say or do. It would have been the perfect time. Yet he asked them about the authority of John, the baptizer, and certainly showed we need authority. The gospel is laced with detail about authority. And in fact, what we talked about was the fact that the inspired writers of the New Testament many times appealed to secular understandings of authority, to show that we need authority in spiritual matters. We emphasize that primarily by the fact that all authority comes from God, even those matters within everyday life, like a husband over a wife, or even a parent over a child, and 
something like at school, a teacher over a student, or work, an employer over an employee, that, that authority, the very existence of the concept comes from God. And so why wouldn't we need authority in spiritual things? So we saw that in biblical history, and we certainly saw that as it's inherent within our conversion. We're baptized in the name of Christ, and we turn from the power, the authority of Satan into the power authority of God. We noted also that the very definition of sin is being without law. That is, if we do something without authority, that's what sin is. Whether it's a doctrinal matter, a matter of the work, worship, or organization of the church, or just a personal decision in our life. If we don't have authority for that, we sin in doing so. And then we talked about in the next lesson, the source of authority. That's evident by Jesus' question is, the baptism of John from heaven or men, there are only two possibilities. Either your authority or your claim of authority is authority from heaven, or it is a claim of authority from men. Whether you know it or not, it's one of the two. And so we notice that it's not just that we need authority, but we need authority from the proper sources. There's a lot of people in the world who claim to be following Jesus, who appeal to sources of authority, whether knowingly or unknowingly, that are not inspired sources of authority, that is not from heaven, and they practice what they practice, and they believe what they believe based on a false source of authority. But the proper source of authority from heaven is demonstrated throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament that we are under today, that God is the authority. He gave Christ all authority, and Christ still speaks today through the apostolic teaching in the New Testament the apostles and the prophets, their written word that is preserved by for us today. But we also noted in Luke the 20th chapter that their question of Jesus, what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? And then their reasoning after Jesus challenged them about the baptism of John, when they said, if we say from men all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet, what that does is it shows that authority is demonstrable. I want to tell you that when the Jewish rulers approached Jesus on this occasion, they were not thinking, I'm going to ask Jesus by what authority He is doing and teaching these things. And Jesus is going to be stumped on the very basis of the question. He's, he's going to say, I don't have any authority. What do you mean authority? They knew He was going to a claim, or they at least perceived He would claim, I'm doing these things by the authority of Jehovah God. Their challenge was not simply for him to make a claim, but to demonstrate, to prove that he had authority from God. And evidently, most of the people, these Jewish rulers and leaders aside, saw that John demonstrated in some way or fashion he had authority. And so what we want to talk about today is the fact that we must have authority but also understand that we must be able to demonstrate the authority we have for the things that we say and the things that we do. We can know the source, and if we can know the source of our authority is God, is heaven, we must be able to prove that. Otherwise, it is simply from man. We can't just claim we have authority. We've got to back that claim up with evidence. No one can go into the court of law and a lawyer stand up there and, and say that, my client is innocent of the crime that he is being convicted of and then sit down and think that's enough. He may very well be innocent, but that lawyer has to put in the work and show by the law and the evidence that his client is indeed innocent. It's the same thing for us. I believe that we have authority for everything we've done here this afternoon. I would not in any way, as I submit to and try to pattern my life by the example of the Apostle Paul, do anything that is contrary to my conscience. That is, I want to serve God, and, and I know that we all here today want to do the same. But we've got to give evidence, not just to ourselves, but to each other as a collective and as individuals, that what we do and say is indeed authorized. So what is the way we establish authority? from the New Testament. We'll consider some pre preliminary thoughts, some fundamental things that we've got to have as a preface before getting into some of these methodologies that are revealed by the inspired New Testament. I want to impress you first with the fact that the New Testament is God's only medium of communication to us today. 
Certainly the Old Testament is still revealed and it's still preserved and God speaks through the Old Testament. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2, or rather he reminded him about the chapter 3 that is, reminded him about the Old Testament and that it had made him wise for salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. We can be made wise for salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus by reading the Old Testament in part, but it's through the lens of the New Testament. We know that's our authority today. We demonstrated that one of the authorities men appealed to that is from men now, not from heaven, is the Old Testament. Because God nailed that to the cross. He says, I'm not telling you what to do anymore by the Old Testament. You can learn from it, but it's not the authority today. The New Testament is God's sole medium of communication. You know, the early Protestants coined a phrase, sola scriptura, to appeal to this fact that the New Testament is the only thing that we should appeal to for the things that we say and do. The Catholic Church that they were trying to reform, not restore the New Testament Church, but reform the Catholic Church, said that there are two authorities, the Bible and the Pope is the authority, God's representative on earth. And the reformers, the Protestants, said, I don't believe that anymore. The Pope and the bishops, those who are in authority in the Catholic Church, they're not showing a consistency. We don't agree with what they're saying. They're contradicting these parts of the Bible. And so we're doing sola scriptura, which is a very scriptural principle. Only scripture. And that's what we believe, isn't it? But if we believe it, we need to understand its implications. In 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, the Apostle Paul demonstrated Sola Scripture, if you will, only Scripture, by saying in verse 9, quoting from the Old Testament, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. He's telling us we cannot know, period, without God telling us. And God told us, He revealed them to us through His Spirit. Notice verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. These things we also speak, verse 13, are the thoughts of God. And the spiritual things are compared, the New American Standard Bible adds what is implied with spiritual words. So God conveys His thoughts through the very words of His choosing. The product is the inspired New Testament. That is the only thing that we appeal to for authority. And we need to understand the implication of that. It is complete. We look no further and we take nothing away. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, approved correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we as men and women of God, those who are followers of Christ, can be complete. If we can be complete by it, then it is complete. But consider what we read in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. While this is the Old Testament, it demonstrates God's understanding and, and His re revelation of His wisdom in regard to why He imparts any kind of information to us in the way that He does. In Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Notice this, that we may do all the words of this law, you know, someone may claim that God may do something like this or do something like that where there's no mention of it at all in all the Bible, Old Testament or New. And their suggestion in even bringing that speculation up is that we can't limit God and we don't know everything God knows. But this very verse is telling us that the reason we don't know everything God knows, the reason why we only have what we have is not because God didn't have enough time that God didn't think it important, God gave us exactly what He wanted to give us. That tells me if it's not in the pages of the New Testament, it doesn't matter to us. It's not important at all. It bears no weight to our salvation and our standing with God. Speculations are completely and totally useless. But then again, everything that is, the very words, word after word, is revealed for a purpose. We can't just dismiss anything. If God revealed something, it means it's important. And we need to understand what its meaning is. We need to figure out why He revealed it. And we do that with these things we're talking about this afternoon. We need to notice by that the implication that then this is a binding law. And it is a law like other laws that bears a pattern. You hear in the secular law of case law. And those are laws that have been 
demonstrated and put into uh, solidified in, in, in our laws of the land. Not because necessarily they were originally drafted word for word, but along the time there came to be a certain circumstance where there was a court case and they determined by that particular special event, maybe unprecedented, that based on the fundamental tenets of our Constitution, this is either lawful or this is now unlawful, and the future cases refer back to that case law. What that is is establishing a pattern that conforms to our Constitution. I want to tell you that the New Testament does the exact same thing. It's not an index where we can think of a word and go to the back of our Bibles and find the exact amount of places it's there, and we have a direct statement for each and everything God demands of us. We have concordances as tools, but those aren't revealed truths. Those are just a reference to study the revealed truth. What we have is a pattern of words, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, which Paul tells the young evangelist Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me and faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The Greek word translated into pattern is hupotyposis. Arton Gingrich just gives the definition as many other uh, lexicographers do as a pattern. That's what it means. But he demonstrates in this passage, it is a pattern as a basis for behavioral comparison, a standard, which means Matthew through John, Acts, all the letters to the churches and the book of Revelation, they are revealed as the standard of our faith. They are the law that we serve under today. They must be followed. They establish a pattern. We have heard them from Paul. He told in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 15 to the church in Thessalonica to hold fast the traditions that they had received, whether by word or our epistle. That's the pattern. We need to make sure we look at all Scripture in that regard. It is revealed to establish a pattern. We may not read a verse and immediately understand exactly what God is trying to tell us by that, but as we study the Scripture and we piece together everything that is said on a given subject, we properly exegete the passages of Scripture within their context, then we reach an understanding of the harmony of God's Word in all its parts and make conclusions that God wants us to make based on a pattern. This takes effort though. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 tells us to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God. Workmen who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The New American Standard Bible says accurately handling the word of truth. That's what we're seeking to understand this afternoon. And Lord willing, we will. So consider with me, if you will, something that I know that you've heard before. But there are things that we've got to revisit and seek to understand further. Sometimes we need to be careful that we truly understand the methodology that is revealed to us in Scripture I think that we can all understand the three ways we establish authority, but we've got to rehash these things to make sure we do understand them, not to mention that there are some who may not have ever heard this before, or some children who had heard it when they were younger and now they're older and now it's actually processing in their minds. These things are important. We've got to know why we do the things that we do, why we don't do the things that we refrain from doing, and it's something that God gives us in His Word. Consider that there are three ways of establishing authority. Three ways God shows us that this is what we must do or that this is what we have the authority to do. There are liberties within this. That's for another lesson. And there are things that we must not do. There are no questions about it. There are three ways that we see that established in the Scripture. The first way is the most clear, if you will, not to imply that the others are unclear, but it's just the most straightforward, and that is a direct statement. He makes a statement to us in Scripture. It's ending with a period. There is this statement. There may be a command. It may just be a piece of information that states a fact. And that establishes authority for that thing that is revealed. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, in verse 18, Jesus gives the preface to this command by showing He has all authority. And then He makes a direct statement that is in the form of a command. Go therefore, based on His authority, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want to tell you, as we already know, that when the Bible makes a direct statement, there's no mixing it up and there's no twisting it to mean something else. There's no debating the issue. It is what it is. 
when God gives us a direct command, we don't get to talk to each other about whether we're going to do that at this place, whether we're going to do it as a family, whether we're going to do it as an individual. When God gives a command, that's it. We either believe it and follow it, or we don't believe it and we don't follow it. And if we say we believe it and we don't follow it, then we don't really believe it because the biblical definition of a believer is one who follows God obediently by faith. We need to think about that. I need to think about that next time that I come into contact with someone that I know I have an opportunity to share the gospel with because my Lord and Savior, my King, told me directly, you must make disciples of all the nations. Secondly, we have another way of establishing authority as revealed in the New Testament, and that is by approved example, as Billy referenced earlier this afternoon. That is, the church in its early form, as they did not have the fully revealed New Testament like we do in written form, that which is perfect is going to come, and that which is in part will be done away with, 1 Corinthians 13. Jude 3 says it has once for all now been delivered to the saints. They didn't have it early on. So how did they know what God wanted them to do? Well, one of the most primary things they had was the apostles' guidance. These inspired men who wrote these epistles as the New Testament was being compiled by their writings and who gave them verbal information as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15 says, whether by our word or our epistle, something spoken, something written. And by the guidance of these men who had an infallible message, They weren't infallible men, but their message was infallible. They were inspired of God. They were being moved by the Holy Spirit. We studied that a couple of weeks ago as well. That's what inspiration means. Then we know the things the early church did under the guidance of apostolic teaching and revelation were indeed approved for us to follow. And depending on the particular context, not just approved, but demanded. Something we cannot just decide whether to do or not do but we have to do it. In Matthew 16 and in verse 19, Jesus told Peter and the apostles on that occasion, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I reference the New American Standard Bible again that gives the right sense to that passage when it tells us whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. The Catholics will take this as Peter being the first pope and God is giving him authority. Jesus is giving him authority right here to just be the arbiter of any situation. He gets to make the calls. He's God on earth. That's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying that I have the keys. I made the key. You know, you take a key to to Lowe's or or you go to a store that has a key maker and you, you put in the master copy and it scans it and it makes you a new key. The key came from heaven. He's saying, I'm giving you the standard. You don't get to make the calls. I'm making the calls. You just merely hold the keys within your hand. That's what he was saying. It's already bound and it's already loosed. An example of this is in Acts the 14th chapter and in verse 23 where it says that when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I want to tell you that the very fact that we can say it's God's will that there be elders, plurality, not one elder in the church, is simply by an example. There's never a direct statement or command in Scripture that says God wants more than one elder in each church. We reach that conclusion by approved example. And thirdly, and not least, but thirdly, we have necessary inference. That's when something is not directly stated or commanded but it is necessarily implied by the text. That means it takes effort, diligence. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. God gave us a brain and, and sound reasoning for a reason. He wants us to read Scripture and chew on it mentally so that we can come to the proper conclusions. He's created us in a way that is suitable to seek, grope, and find Him and His will as we have His will revealed in the New Testament. So God says something, and there's an obvious implication to this. So when we see in the text that there is an obvious implication to this, then we necessarily infer that that is the case. I would suggest to you, though, that not all inferences, not all implications are necessary. For example, at the end of John's Gospel, you might remember that Peter was restored and Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, 
and he had leaned on his breast at the supper and he said, Lord, who is the one who will, who will betray you? Or who is the one who betrays you? Peter seeing him said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? And then Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And it says in verse 23 that people who read this and heard about this made an inference that was not necessary. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. And so we've got to use honesty. We've got to use sound reasoning. And we've got to harmonize the Scripture. There is never a contradiction in Scripture. And so things that are implied necessarily are things that follow this pattern of sound words. An example of this is in Matthew 19 and in verse 9 when Jesus answering the Pharisees' question Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. You know, we often state when discussing marriage, divorce, and remarriage that if a person is is sinned against by adultery, and we call them the innocent party. There is the one who has committed adultery, and here is the one who has been offended. They are the innocent party. If the innocent party divorces the one who has committed adultery, they do not sin when they remarry. But nowhere does the Bible say that directly. But it says it implicitly in Matthew 19 and verse 9. If anyone who divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, then someone who divorces his wife because of sexual immorality and marries another does not commit adultery. And that's exactly what Jesus meant by that particular Scripture. But I want us to understand, though, that these three ways, exclusive ways of establishing authority, are each valid in and of themselves. We don't need a command, example, and necessary inference for everything we do. We need one of them. There are some who make the the mistake of thinking that um, an example is not enough, a necessary inference is not enough. Both of those has to come along with a direct statement or a command. Well, if we have everything in a direct statement or command, we don't need examples and we don't need to necessarily infer anything. One of them is good enough. That's exactly what God's pattern reveals. We give the example all the time in discussing these things of the Lord's Supper that we just observed. In the Lord's Supper, there are all three ways of demonstrating and establishing authority that we appeal to for the exact ways that we partake of the Lord's Supper. In fact, the very fact that we partake of the Lord's Supper comes from a direct statement that is a command of the Lord. We just read this before the Lord's Supper. Carl read it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. Paul looked back to what he had received from the Lord himself and that he had delivered to the Corinthians so that they would follow it that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Same manner He took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of Me. See that there's no wiggle room in Jesus' words as revealed by the Apostle Paul. He's telling us, do this. Just as a parent tells a child, you do this because I said to do this. Jesus tells us to do That, observe the Lord's Supper. And so we do it without question. But you consider the fact that we took of the Lord's Supper today, of all days. There are seven days in the week, and we never observe the Lord's Supper except on the first day of the week. Why? Where does the Bible say anything about that? I want to tell you that the Bible doesn't give a direct statement or command about the time of the observance. The Bible doesn't even give necessarily a a necessarily implication of the particular time. There is a necessary implication of the frequency. We'll talk about that. But the only place in all the New Testament that says anything about observing the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week is in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. And it's not a direct statement. It's not a command. It's an example. It says that on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. They gathered together for the purpose of taking the Lord's Supper, and it was on the first day of the week. I want to tell you in verse 6, it validates that this was the day they took the Lord's Supper, and therefore, as a matter of specific information, excludes any other day. 
We sailed away from Philippi in verse 6 after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. They stayed that long so that on the first day of the week they could partake the Lord's Supper with them and gather with the saints. But someone says, well, we may only be able to take on the first day of the week, but we can take on the first day of the week once a month or twice a month or twice uh, or, or, or once every two weeks or maybe just once a year on Easter. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, but it will be on a Sunday. I want to tell you that it is necessarily inferred, implied by this text, that it is every day of the week, first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26, notice after Paul appealed to the command of the Lord to observe the Lord's Supper, said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. You notice those words? For as often. This is something we are going to do often. It's not just once every year or once every month. And I know often is a relative term, but it is something we do often. So if it's something we do often, or we could say frequently, we've got to determine by the logic God gave us and the revelation He supplied us with, how often is often. The only example we have is of them partaking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. And whenever there's a first day of the week, therefore, it is necessarily inferred that we must observe the Lord's Supper. You know, under the Old Testament, there are several several examples of memorials and things that the Israelites were supposed to do. Some of them were weekly, some of them were annually. And when something was to be observed weekly, the day of the week was given. For example, the Sabbath day in Exodus 20 and in verse 8, the Scripture reveals to us, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Sabbath meaning seventh. Every seventh day of the week, they kept the Sabbath. No one would argue that. No one would try to dispute that. If they came together on the first day of the week, not the second, not the sixth, not the seventh, the first day of the week to observe the Lord's Supper, we know that every week has a first day of the week. And so every first day of the week, by example, we observe the Lord's Supper. But I want to impress you with something along these lines. This is not something that we've invented. Even some in the church are starting to turn away from this idea of a system of faith. They will discourage teaching a system of faith. And they will encourage to just teach each other God. But I want to tell you, there is no distinction between the man and the plan. That's another phrase that was coined some time ago. Teach the man, Jesus, not the plan. But I want to tell you that the man is the plan and the plan is the man. Jesus is the Word, John 1.14, who came into flesh. Jesus revealed His Word through the apostles' teaching. What we have and what we do as we seek to establish authority for all that we say and do is not something we've invented. It's not Church of Christ doctrine. This is inspired. This is an inspired hermeneutic. Hermeneutic meaning method of interpretation. And by inspired, I mean the same thing that Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16. God breathed. This came from God. It didn't come from the early church fathers. It didn't come from those in the restoration movement hundreds of years ago. It didn't come from my father. It didn't come from his father. It didn't come from the oldest and most wise preachers you've ever met in your life. It didn't come from the elders. It came from God Himself. This is not Church of Christ doctrine. This is the doctrine of Christ, which the Church of Christ that belongs to Him follows faithfully. I want us to consider that. That's easily demonstrated throughout the New Testament that this didn't come from man because Jesus used this. Obviously, He used direct statement and command. Remember in Matthew 15 and in verse 3 when the Pharisees, by their traditions, were nullifying the commandments of God? This is what Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 13. Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? If God commanded it, it doesn't matter what your tradition is. You are not to supersede the commandment of God by your tradition. Or how about in Matthew 22 and verse 36 when one asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he quoted Scripture. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's obvious. But you know, Jesus also used the methodology of approved example. In Matthew the 12th chapter, as they were walking on the Sabbath day, the disciples of Jesus were hungry, plucked heads of grain, rubbed them in their hands, and ate the grain. And the law of the Sabbath says you shall not work on the Sabbath. And the elders took that and by tradition twisted it and made their own definition of what work was. And so they confronted Jesus about their 
his disciples doing that on the Sabbath. Your disciples, they said, are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now Jesus spoke to some length on several things. Notice verse 5. The way that he showed they had the authority to do such was by an approved example. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? You know, the Sabbath was a day of worship. And so the work that the priests had to do continued on the Sabbath day. And so it's obvious that by that example, not all work is prohibited on the Sabbath. That's what Jesus was saying. He said, we have an approved example of someone doing something necessary on the Sabbath. And my disciples are not sinning any more than these people who profane the Sabbath, so to speak, but were blameless. And lastly, Jesus used necessary inference. In Luke, the 20th chapter, also recorded by Matthew in the 22nd chapter of his gospel. But notice Luke's rendering of the occasion. In Luke 20, when the Sadducees challenged Jesus about the resurrection, Jesus gave this answer. Even Moses showed in the burning bush passage, Exodus 3, that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. And you know, they didn't object to that. They were impressed by that statement. But notice, he says, Moses showed that the dead are raised. But Moses did not say that. Moses did not record that God said the dead are raised. He made a necessary implication, pointed that out that the passage made, and then necessarily inferred by that passage that the dead are raised. Hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if He's not God of the dead, but of the living, then there of necessity is a resurrection. He necessarily inferred that. God did not say that directly. Moses necessarily inferred it. And that's what Jesus said. Moses showed in the burning bush passage that there is a resurrection. Consider furthermore the examples that we find in Hebrews of these divine hermeneutics on display. The Hebrew writer, as you know, quoted Scripture so many times. He's quoting from the Old Testament, and he's primarily quoting from the Old Testament because his readers are falling away from Christ, going back to the Old Testament, and he's showing them by the Old Testament through direct statement, command, example, and necessary inference that the Old Testament is not your law anymore. And you need to be faithful to Christ. So consider with me, if you will, that methodology on display in Hebrews. Firstly, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, the Hebrew writer appealed to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verses 3 through 4 to show them that they must, they need to endure. He said, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. He quotes Habakkuk 2, for yet a little while and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. I want to tell you, when Paul quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, he's telling us that the way that we are justified is by faith. And then he tells us what the object of faith is. Jesus, the Hebrew writer, quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 in a more original context of Habakkuk 2, where Habakkuk's wondering why they're going to be suffering at the hands of a nation more evil than they as a form of, of, of discipline from God. And God is telling him, don't you mind that. You need to just be faithful. You need to endure through this difficulty. And that's what the Hebrew writer is saying. He said this, that means you must endure. It's simply a direct statement. In the third chapter, we're well aware of the example of the Israelites that the Hebrew writer appealed to. And he appealed to it because he was showing them that you are of the household of faith and you will partake with the Messiah ultimately. But if you persist, again, and he uses an example for that, in verse 6, he says, Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast confidence with the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And between that, he quoted Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, which was a reference to the example of the Israelites who had been saved. They were given salvation from slavery in Egypt but they did not continue in faith and fell away. He's saying, based on the example that is in divine history of the Israelites, if you don't keep on keeping on, you won't make it to heaven any more than they made it to the promised land. And someone still has the audacity to say that we're once saved, always saved. Not if we're following this inspired hermeneutic, because by approved example we see we can lose our salvation. And lastly, the Hebrew writer uses necessary inference. 
in chapter 8, in other places in the epistle as well. But in chapter 8, notice in verse 6, he tells us that Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as He is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. You know, the Hebrew audience, if Paul, or the Hebrew writer rather, wouldn't have gone further, might have challenged him. How are you going to demonstrate that this is a better covenant than the glorious covenant that Moses brought down from the mountain? But what the Hebrew writer goes on to demonstrate, not by necessarily a direct statement or even an example, but what is necessarily implied in the text of Jeremiah 31, 31-34, is that this covenant is better. He says in verse 7, because if that first covenant had been faultless, no place would have been sought for a second. It's better because the first covenant was not without fault. What was the fault? Finding fault with them. Well, why was there fault with them? He gives us Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of the Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them even to the great and greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Where the sins were reminded of, he'll say in chapter 10 under that old covenant, under this new covenant, they're thrown away. They are forgiven. He will remember them no more. Obviously that's better. And it's not his opinion, it's a fact by necessary implication. Secondly, verse 13, he makes a necessary inference by the implication in the text and that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. If there is a new covenant coming after this, it must mean that there will come a time when this is not any useful anymore. It is obsolete. The Hebrew writer used this methodology. We need to understand this comes from God and we have no choice but to use it ourselves to find His will. That's exactly what happened in Acts the 15th chapter. Noting firstly, we won't read it, but in Galatians the 2nd chapter, I believe that's referencing the same situation. The Apostle Paul went up by revelation. He already knew the truth. He didn't yield to these false teachers for even a minute. He knew what the truth was. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was not about establishing what the truth was. It was about establishing what they already knew the truth to be. They'll say, we know that a Gentile does not have to be circumcised to be saved. How do you know it? We can show you by God's will through command, example, and necessary inference. In Acts the 15th chapter, some Jews came from Judea to Antioch and were binding circumcision on Gentile Christians. So they were sent, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and others, to the elders and apostles in Jerusalem with this question. And they used these methods to show that you do not have to be circumcised to be saved. And verses 7 through 11, we'll have to speed through this. But the Apostle Peter referred to the time when he was sent to Cornelius in his household to preach the gospel. You remember in Acts 10 vividly that the Holy Spirit fell upon them as it did on the apostles at the beginning. And by that demonstration coming from the divine, Peter made a necessary inference. Verse 8, God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us and made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. God didn't tell him verbally that there is no distinction. They're going to be purified by faith just as you. Even that vision he reached a necessary inference from that the Gentiles did not have to keep the law of Moses. And then Barnabas and Paul in verse 12, they the multitude kept silent and listened to them declaring how many miracles and wonders God worked through them among the Gentiles. They preached the gospel that did not include circumcision or keeping the law of Moses. And if that was not approved, if they must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, God wouldn't have confirmed their message through miracles, yet He did. We have the example of their preaching, confirmed by God, approved example, that the Gentiles don't need to keep the law of Moses. And then lastly, James, quoting from the Old Testament in Amos chapter 9, and in verse 11 and 12, said plainly, the Scriptures tell us the Gentiles are included in this. Even the Gentiles who are called by my name, the Lord is going to have them in this new tabernacle. They do not need to be bothered with the Old Testament 
but they need to be encouraged to follow the gospel faithfully. We need to understand that this is God's revelation to us. This is His expectation for us to follow. And everything we believe, everything we say, everything we do as a congregation or as individuals, we must have a direct statement or command, an approved example or a necessary inference, or we ought not to be doing it. I'll give you several examples very quickly. Consider the direct statements or commands we have that we practice faithfully. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verses 1 and 2, Paul uses the phrase, so also you must do in regard to the contribution that he commanded the churches in Macedonia to participate in and that he revealed to the Corinthians and even by extension to us. In Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 5, we're told to speak to one another, to sing to one another. That is a direct statement. It's a command. We cannot neglect it at all. Consider even in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in verse 6, a command that sadly a lot of congregations and individuals are negligent to follow. When the Apostle Paul said, we command you, he used the very word, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition you receive from us. The easiest thing for us to follow is something that many don't follow. Church discipline is commanded. Also in Galatians 6, we could throw it in that category as well, bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. What about examples that we practice things based on the examples approved in Scripture? Well, we notice that there were elders in every church in Acts 14 and verse 23. But in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, he's commanded by Paul to appoint elders in every city. So someone may say, well, if there's elders in every city, then maybe that city has multiple churches and there's an eldership that is reigning over multiple churches. There's your authority for institutionalism. That's not what he was saying. And we know that because examples must harmonize just like any other thing in Scripture. In Acts 14.23, it says the elders were in every church. So when Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every city, we know that if there are multiple churches in that city, there are elders in those specific congregations that have authority over that flock and no other. Why? Because we have the example of Acts 14 and verse 23. A plurality of eldership and also the autonomy of eldership by approved example. In Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul talked about how the Philippians had sent him support in preaching the gospel through Epaphroditus. He does not say that the Philippians sent money to a sponsoring church because that was too small of a church and the sponsoring church had a greater capacity coming from other churches and that church sent money to Paul. That's not in Scripture. The only example we have as a preacher being supported is through a local congregation. It may be by a carrier but it's from one congregation to that preacher. That's the only example that we have. Similarly, with benevolence, in Acts 11, there was a famine that was prophesied about. And when the Christians heard about that famine, people from Antioch sent money directly by, by Saul to the church in Judea and, and to the elders for distribution. That's the only example we have. Similarly, later on in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul noted that Macedonia and Achaia were sending directly to the church by their hands in Jerusalem. And it says needy saints. There's not an example of benevolence to those in the community. There's not an example of one church sending money to another church so they could have a greater capacity for evangelism. Let's say we decide we want to have a radio program but we don't have enough money for a radio program. So 84th Street gives us money so that we can have a radio program. There's not an example for that in the Scripture. That would be sinful. That would be contrary to the Word of God. And then lastly, what about necessary inferences that we follow because we know God is telling us necessarily, implicitly in the text that we must do this or must not do this. Consider firstly, again, church discipline. You know, there's a question that some might have concerning church discipline. They may ask, can I keep company with someone outside the church that is not in the assembly, but when we're away from the assembly, can I keep company with someone even though the congregation has withdrawn from them? The congregation withdrew from them, but we're not in church. They're not at the assembly. Can I just go along to get along with them? Can I have a common meal with them? Can I participate with them in other things, acting like there's nothing wrong? Do I have authority to do that? I want to tell you, it's very easy to state that we do not have authority to do any such thing. And we necessarily infer that from the passage of 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, a passage of church discipline, where in verse 11, the Apostle Paul elaborates saying, 
I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Notice, not even to eat with such a person. I can tell you that necessarily implies that if a congregation withdraws from one of its members, that we, outside of the assembly as an individual, have no authority to participate with them at all because they have been withdrawn from. And the reason we can necessarily imply that, infer that from the text, because a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 22, he pointed out one of the errors of the Corinthian church was that they were having a common meal together in the assembly. It's not authorized. He says, do you, have, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-two. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Verse 34, he says, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So when he says not even to eat with such a person, it's impossible that he's talking about the assembly. He may be just talking about having lunch as a friend. It's not authorized. You know, someone else will say, well, can I have any kind of fellowship with someone because even though they're in sin, the church didn't withdraw from them. Necessarily implied from Scripture is that absolutely not we can't. In 2 John 9-11, through we're told that whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God, and he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house or greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. He didn't say... If he comes to your church, he says, if he comes to your house, because if you greet him, you share in his evil deeds. It says nothing about local congregational discipline. He's in sin, so he doesn't have fellowship with God. And if you're in fellowship with God, you ought not to have fellowship with him. Again, in Matthew 19 and verse 9 about divorce, we necessarily infer from that text that there is no other exception for divorce. Yet even some brethren will claim there is another exception beyond fornication. But when Jesus says, except for sexual immorality, and He doesn't say except for sexual immorality and this and that and the other, it necessarily implies, along with the law of silence in Scripture, we'll study at a later time, that there are no other exceptions. And then, of course, we talked in Acts 20 and verse 7 about the frequency of observing the Lord's Supper. Now, you might notice that I left a few things out, even though this was certainly a little lengthy, and I thank you for your attention. There are other things that we are, no doubt, Lord willing, going to cover in later studies. And I appreciate your attention, and I encourage you to to be present for those as well. And and if you were missing on the other occasions, the first two lessons, I encourage you to give a listen to those as well. Without leaving, before we leave this afternoon, rather, I want to extend an invitation based on a command, again, of the Lord. And Matthew, or Mark, rather, chapter 16 and verse 15, he told the apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then what follows is a command that he who believes and is baptized will be saved, he who does not believe will be condemned. I want to tell you that because Jesus directly stated that, it is a command of Scripture that you cannot get to heaven without doing that. And so we don't want to leave a place at all, ever, when we're gathered together without extending that invitation. If you have any other spiritual need that we can assist you with, We encourage you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.